There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hello and welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is Brett and this is our 24th installment in this series. This is called Thinking Fast and Slow. This is one of my favorite episodes of School Sucks of all time. This is one of the listener favorites of all time. It is also, I should warn you, some of the consistently strongest language that you will hear in any episode of School Sucks. I recorded this in that interesting, intense period between the decision of the 2016 election and Inauguration Day in 2017. It was the first episode in a series called Speed in Politics. That entire series is available to the people who support the efforts of the School Sucks Project, especially during this run of Essential School Sucks shows. You can go to patreon.com slash school sucks. And right now, that entire series is posted at the top of our feed. Once you're a patron and you get the RSS link, you'll find the four additional shows in this series following this one that I am releasing right now. So this has a long lead-in, an angry lead-in, but I think it's a valuable running start for a 20-minute lesson on the concept of thinking fast and slow. That is also the title of a book by Daniel Kahneman. And in this series, I was applying the lessons of that book to political thinking. We have, according to Kahneman, a system one, which is a fast, seemingly impulsive, survival-based kind of thinking, and system two, which is our logical, rational faculties. Often what people do when thinking about political or social or cultural issues, economic issues, is they make a fast, impulsive, emotion-based system one decision. And then, because there is this expectation, at least still, at least as I record this, that we are rational beings, they will come up with a system two uh, justification for their system one decision. Before we get started, I'm gonna play you a little video giving a synopsis of Kenneman's idea of thinking fast and slow. And then we will go into where I was back in November of 2016, looking at the election of Donald Trump and what I thought it would mean uh, for the United States. So as you can tell, we are moving away from, in this third series, what it means to be educated, away from some of the principles of self-directed education and into the principles of critical thinking. This is a most important one, which is why I start with it. How our fears or frustrations, or just our emotions generally, interrupt our ability to think 
clearly and rationally about what's in front of us. And it is probably the last, I think, viable pattern interruption that you might have with some of the people who seem ideologically possessed in a way that uh, you think is dangerous. Introducing them to this idea of System 1 and System 2, I think might be the last chance you have at reaching some of these people, which is why I wanted it to be included in this series of shows. So you can get the entire Speed in Politics series by supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash school sucks. There are links to all the ways you can support School Sucks Project in the show notes for this episode. And one of the uh, easiest and potentially, especially if you're a teen or the parent of a teen or teens, is to go and grab a free book from our partner, Praxis. It is called Forward Tilt. It's written by the Praxis founder, Isaac Morehouse, and Praxis graduate, Hannah Frankman. It is a kind of a rundown on their accumulated wisdom from helping many, many, many young people escape the college tracks, the college trap, and move more swiftly into fulfilling and well-paying careers without a ton of debt or very, very bad ideology stuck in their heads. So again, that link is in the show notes, or you can go to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast. This is The Essential School Sucks number 24, originally released November 20th, 2016, as podcast 461, Speed in Politics Part 1, Rules for Radicals. We're lucky today to have the Nobel Prize winning psychologist and economist, Daniel Kahneman, whose uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is one of the bestsellers of last year and a great manual for how to make better decisions. Professor Kahneman is also a partner in the consulting firm, The Greater Good. Professor Kahneman, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Your book makes use of a very useful analogy. In fact, the analogy is built into the title, Thinking Fast and Slow. System one is thinking fast. System two is thinking slow. What's the difference between the two systems, and why is it important for decision makers to understand the difference? Well, system one is essentially what comes up automatically in your memory. So, you know, when I say two plus two, uh, something comes into your head. When I say your mother, an emotion comes. Uh, so all these things that are automatic, that's what I call system one. And you have no control of it because it's automatic and involuntary. System two, the slower thinking, is distinguished really not so much by the fact that it's slow, although it's pretty slow, but by the fact that it's effortful and deliberate. So what you can do deliberately, you do in system two. And you can do, you can, well, control yourself, control your thoughts. System one does most of the mental work. It happens automatically. We don't have to worry to where to put our next foot or uh, what word should come next. Some of the work, and it's important work, is done by System 2 when we slow down. Do decision makers sometimes think they're in System 2 when they're actually in System 1? I think mostly. I think most of us uh, feel that we have reasons for what we're doing. But in fact, uh, we do what we're doing very largely because of reasons that we're not necessarily completely aware of. And then when we're asked, why do you do this? We have reasons. But the reasons are not necessarily the causes of our actions. Does it lead to mental errors, bad decisions, because you think you've made a deliberation and you haven't? It really depends whether you're very skilled uh, and whether the world provides support for your skills. So, you know, if you're a chess player, and you make very quick decisions about your next move, if you're a master chess player, they're going to be good moves. 
but the world is not like the chessboard, so it's much more complicated. And in the world, a relatively good move is not necessarily successful. So it's much more complicated, the relationship between moves and, and outcomes. And there, sometimes, sometimes, system two, slowing yourself down, has advantages and enables you to see things that system one doesn't. You've often talked about, and one of the things that's given your research such purchase, is that people often make mistakes because they're in system one. And even if they know that they're in system one, or even if they're aware of the mental shortcut or short circuit, if you will, that they're doing, they can't help themselves. Well, you know, this isn't familiar to everybody from visual illusions. So, you know, there are those famous illusions where you have two lines and one looks longer than the other, and I tell you that they're of equal length, and one continues to look longer than the other. The problem is with what we call cognitive illusions, the illusions in thinking, that it's never quite as clear cut that, you know, you really believe that you are wrong. Uh, with the visual illusion, you really believe that you're wrong. But with the cognitive illusions, it continues to feel right. So you have an error. Somebody tells you it's an error. Your better self tells you it's an error, but it still feels right. Can you give me an example? much for joining us and let us begin with our first and only story the 2016 election <laughs> or as you may know it I thought I wanted it to be over but now that it's over I wish it was still going on because it turns out the ending is even worse 20 fucking 16 <laughs> the results on Tuesday were, were a little different than what just over half the voters wanted we can now project the winner of the presidential race CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency Donald J Trump will become the 45th president of the United States. It's true. That happened. <laughs> it turns out, instead of showing our daughters that they could someday be president, America proved that no grandpa is too racist to become leader of the free world. <laughs> Look, papa, someday that could be you. <laughs> now, if you're like me... Yeah, well, I'm not. Hey, everybody, this is Brett. Welcome back to School Sucks Podcast. Hey, have you ever watched a temperamental three-year-old boy try to put a puzzle together? I mean, like a puzzle that's tough for him, like a hundred-piece puzzle. I think we all remember our first 100-piecer. Mine was of the Ewoks. It sucked. This goddamn thing is ridiculous, I said to my mother. They all look the same. My outbursts at that age were, were mostly verbal. But I, I remember my youngest brother, who's five years younger than me, and uh, when he was three, I was old enough to actually have memories of him as a little boy. And I remember watching him try to do some things. And he had the kind of low frustration tolerance that you would expect from a three-year-old third child. And I would, I would watch him do tasks that were challenging uh, more than once. I would stand off to the side and I would say, oh, here it comes. He's going to have a meltdown. And whatever he was doing whether it was a puzzle or some little crafts project he was doing with popsicle sticks. Man, when he lost it, bang, everything off the table. Total destruction. Okay, now, this is kind of cartoonish, and in a way, it might be funny. But in a more compassionate moment, especially for parents, we'd pause and we'd say, what does that boy really need right now? Well, it's a need for an escape from discomfort, from frustration, from uncertainty. 
but without the perspective or the problem-solving skills to find a constructive path. There's also very little self-awareness. So the impulse is to target the thing that is creating the frustration or the upset and destroy it. But where were we? We, uh, we started the show with uh, John Oliver and his HBO show Last Week Tonight. So we all get to watch John Oliver react, mock react, to the election of, of Donald Trump and the defeat of Hillary Clinton. And it was exactly what I thought it would be. He sticks out like a sore thumb, and frankly, he even looks like a sore thumb. So, so giving him a chance, in the sense of not speaking out immediately against policies that he's proposed, is dangerous, because some of them are alarming. Just some of Trump's promises? Repeal and replace Obamacare. Build a wall along the southern border with Mexico and get Mexico to pay for said wall. Deport all 11 to 12 million undocumented immigrants in this country, including children. Appoint a special prosecutor to investigate and potentially jail Hillary Clinton. Temporarily ban Muslims and immigrants from terror-prone nations from coming into the United States. Okay, okay, stop. Just stop. Because it sounds like you're reading the to-do list on Satan's refrigerator. <laughs> which, which, of course, Satan no longer needs now that hell has frozen over. Folks, this is a half-hour comedy show. I have a fantastic sense of humor, frankly. And I go in to things like this wanting to be entertained. I'm not the guy who goes to the magic show and tries to figure out how the, the magician does every trick. I want to believe, you know? I go to in, in comedy things and comedy shows to laugh. I laughed twice. Here are the two times. He said, uh, Donald Trump being elected president is like finding out that you're on a plane that's being flown by a wombat. It was the way he said it was very funny. I'm just giving credit where it's due. Uh, the other line was, <laughs> this was really good. He was criticizing Donald Trump for implying the veracity of something because he heard it on talk radio. And John Oliver said, that's like saying this sandwich is good because I found it in a hole. <laughs> if something was wrong with it, why would somebody have put it in a hole? Very good writing by somebody who's never on camera and we've never heard of. But despite my expectation of stale and recycled material from, you know, real time with Bill Maher and The Daily Show and Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers, you know, it's predictable, right? By the way, please do not accuse me of defending Donald Trump. I am not. I don't care for the man. And at the risk of sounding edgy, I think he might even be kind of dangerous. So do not interpret uh, my criticism of their treatment of Donald Trump as support for Donald Trump. But these shows and the mainstream media as a whole are kind of like a parrot cage. Someone goes up to the parrot cage and they say, Donald Trump went out to dinner without the media. Five minutes later, it sounds like this. It's exhausting. So anyway, yes, totally predictable. Only laugh twice. But even I, with my, my low expectations, of people like John Oliver, I was expecting just a, a monicum of, of analysis. I mean, that's, it's kind of like what lends shows like this, just a, a little bit of credibility is they try to be irreverent in their exploration of, of these kinds of topics. So maybe they'd have something fresh or interesting to say about it. There was one attempt at this, one attempt at explaining how this terrible, elitist, racist, misogynist, beat the most qualified person to ever be president 
quoting Barack Obama, God Empress Hillary Clinton. And this is where I start to get suspicious that people like John Oliver are just trying to troll people like me. We're going to be examining all of this for years, but for tonight, let, let's look at just one narrow element that may have helped bring us here, because it will be important going forward, and that is our media. Specifically, how a system that is supposed to catch a serial liar failed. Okay. Count to four while breathing in through your nose. Hold it for two seconds. And breathe out, counting to four. Okay, here we go. And I'm not just referring to mainstream TV news, although some did wait far too long to take Trump seriously, giving him billions of dollars worth of free media. Uh, CNN, for instance, sometimes ran his speeches almost in their entirety. And their president, Jeff Zucker, now admits that might not have been such a great idea. I'd say that if we made a mistake last year, it's that uh, we probably did put on too many of his uh, campaign rallies in the in those early months, uh, un, you know, unedited and, and just let them run. And I think in hindsight, we probably shouldn't have done that as much. Yeah, it turns out hindsight, much like the year we're all now desperately looking forward to, is 2020. <laughs> and and that, is, that is not to say that there wasn't some great coverage of Trump in this election from outlets like The Washington Post and The New York Times, even CNN eventually pivoted and began correcting Trump in lower third graphics, such as Trump, I never said Japan should have nukes, parentheses, he did. <laughs> and that is good journalism. So, folks, what hundreds of thousands, if not millions of millennials, my demographic, learned from John Oliver last Sunday night was that the mainstream media has actually been derelict in its duty. They did not work hard enough to sway the election away from Donald Trump in Hillary Clinton's favor. Now, speaking of edgy, John Oliver is edgy. He's even willing to name names. CNN is one of the culprits. It, this, there was more to this. The fake news, social media, all that is, is mentioned. But CNN did too much to help Donald Trump. It's a, it's a fascinating statement considering this show is airing on HBO, along with Real Time with Bill Maher, and they've been pretty Clinton-friendly over the last year. So this trolling is kind of happening. And I might just be suspicious here, but it seems like it's happening on several levels, right? First of all, the, the suggestion that the media was too pro-Trump because Trump is somebody who lies, and he is. Most of the time, it doesn't even seem like he knows the difference or cares between what's true and what's a lie. But the fact that somebody in the goddamn audience didn't like shout out at that point, yeah, but look what you guys did with Hillary Clinton. By the way, HBO and CNN share a parent company, Time Warner, the Clinton campaign's sixth largest contributor. But folks, all of this stuff in this episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, it's all just build up. What was really interesting to me was the finale of this half hour program. Because I'm convinced that the ending was the first thing they thought of, but it was too dramatic and had too much of a finality to open the show with. So Oliver's entire monologue through the show is basically him making the case against Donald Trump, asking himself, how do I, after the fact, build what appears to be a walkway of reason between where I was when I encountered a stimulus or a piece of news and where I am now as a result of jumping to a conclusion or succumbing to my impulses? 
And what do I mean? What's the conclusion? What was the impulse? Well, they came from a very rapid, very reckless search for explanations that fit the left's narrative. Even I, all the things you've heard me say on this show, I was still amazed the extent to which some of these people will go to avoid self-reflection. In the grand finale of this episode, John Oliver basically blamed the year 2016 itself. Let's face it, 2016 has been one calamity after another. And while it will be remembered for the giant calamity we all just witnessed, we shouldn't lose sight of the other multiple ways this has been a shitty year. What follows is a montage of left-wing celebrities and people who I think are at least supposed to look like folks who would have voted for Hillary Clinton uh, talking about how bad the year was. It's beautiful. It fits the narrative where the sentence begins, I was a victim of blank. My landlord is a piece of shit. I met Bruce Willis here like a week ago and I asked him for a picture and he said no, so that made me feel bad. My son is hitting puberty and he's being a real pain in the ass. I got um, all mold of my dog on my birthday, so that was like a cherry on top of like a shitty year. Menopause. Never forget Harambe. Harambe's out there listening. He took shots for us. We should take shots for him. Too many deaths. Prince. Prince is my man. I miss Prince. Prince, I mean, that was just... I think the worst is the David Bowie's death. David Bowie. What the fuck? And then the perpetrator is so perfect. It's a year. There is no remedy. There is no recourse. What could we possibly have done to prevent any of this? The year was cursed. But at the very least, we have to have some kind of reaction. Fuck 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Hey, 2016. Go punch yourself in the dick. Fuck this year. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you, John Oliver. Hey, 2016. Fuck you. And hey, 2017. Fuck you, too. I hate you already. And this crescendo builds to the biggest applause line of the night. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you. Where John Oliver, inside a football stadium, takes a plunger and makes a giant structure in the background that says 2016 explode. And the crowd goes wild. Why do the hard and frustrating and upsetting work of self-reflection and auditing your own beliefs and asking yourself a question like, what could I have done better, even if it's a long and painful process? Too. Just follow that immediate impulse to destroy the thing you think is upsetting you. Last week tonight, season finale, perfectly capturing the sentiment of leftists reacting to Trump's election and three-year-old temperamental boys struggling with their first 100-piece puzzle everywhere. Kaboom. How gratifying to just reduce that time from encountering a problem to thinking you have a solution, down to nothing, down to seconds. Quick thinking, problem, solution, right or wrong, is an evolutionary-driven feature of our species that in simpler times was often necessary for our survival. But thinking quickly can be quite catastrophic in a world far more complex than the one our species grew up in. And while reliance on that mode of thinking is detrimental for us today, that reliance is essential 
for those in the political world who seek to be our masters and their allies in the media. Today, and by today, I mean really in the last like seven, 8,000 years, we have a newfound luxury of being evaluative, patient, walking a reasoned path instead of jumping to conclusions, having perspective, because we actually don't have to live in survival mode anymore. Even though there's somebody out there trying to tell you that you do. If you're a woman, if you're gay, if you're trans, if you're Asian, if you're Mexican, if you're Muslim, even if you're a straight, white, cisgendered male. Because their income and their cliques rely on you believing that. And sure, I spent the last half hour picking on John Oliver, which is as easy for me as it is for John Oliver to pick on Donald Trump. But from what I've been seeing on Facebook and Twitter lately, even in my own circles, even in my own Facebook group, her school sucks. John Oliver, with all of his shortcuts and ex post facto rationalizations for them, is unfortunately not alone. Everyone that greeted me was moving slow and drinking fast. I was lost inside a painting on a wall A pretty baby with a cigarette Was looking for a place to ash Stumbling toward the voices down the hall They had filler on the stereo Not the album, just the song For two dancers all in white And no one really knew There were a lot of leather jackets There was a haircut reading palms There was a line outside the bathroom That didn't really move Let's begin here. The day after the election, I was out for a walk, and suddenly I stopped and I said, I know what just happened. They wanted Donald Trump to be president. Who is this they? I didn't define it in my head. I just kind of ran away with my thoughts. You see, facing this outcome, especially after feeling for so long and saying on the show that the election of Hillary Clinton was a foregone conclusion, that the system was, I agreed with Donald Trump, the system was rigged, uh, beyond rigged, and she was being pulled into power by, of course, the media, but also, in my opinion, and we talked about this a lot in some of the AV Club content, perhaps by unseen forces as well. But I had to throw all that out on Wednesday morning. It was an opportunity to confront a lot of what I've come to believe about the electoral system and government generally, because the election of Donald Trump was a referendum on trust in the media, attitudes towards politicians, attitudes towards political correctness, attitudes towards the Clintons and corruption. So there was some evidence of, of responsiveness in the electoral process. And I said, hmm, that can't be. This must be some kind of plan B. 
plan A, of course, was getting Hillary Clinton into power and then proceeding with, you know, to some degree, the status quo and, you know, forwarding this globalist agenda and blah, 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 blah. But now Hillary Clinton became so embattled towards the end of the campaign, largely because of what happened with WikiLeaks. This was all just happening in my head in a matter of seconds. They went to the backup plan of Trump. But why? Well, I don't know why. I didn't have any why. It was just a, a collection of thoughts that I had that made me feel comfortable with what I had been believing for so long. I like conspiracy theories. Moments later, I stopped in my tracks again. I said, oh, what about this, Brett? What if it was Donald Trump all along? What if the American public has been primed for this for decades? We all saw that weird predictive programming thing where Donald Trump comes down the escalator on The Simpsons, but it's way more than just that, I said. I can go back and find clips from 30 years ago and find example after example of Donald Trump being asked seemingly out-of-place questions about politics in the middle of interviews. David Letterman, 1988, roll the tape. Is, is there no end to the kind of things you want to be doing? I mean, is it, is it conceivable that in five years you'll just say, yeah, this has been enjoyable. I just think I'm going to stop doing all of this and then... It is. It yeah. really is. I mean, I've done a lot. I've done things that I really enjoy, and I've done things that I hope are aesthetically pleasing to all of you folks in terms of New York and what I've done in other places. And, and frankly, uh, I guess there's a limit. There's a limit as to even what is going to keep my imagination going. Yeah. And, and when I'm not excited by something, I'm going to stop. Yeah. Uh, and politics, we talked about this last time. Any interest in any kind of appointment or commission or a position with this administration or, or something down the, down well, the road away? I always had. I was, I was uh, I hope, helpful to George Bush. I've always had interest in politics, but I don't see myself running. I really, at this point, David, I really enjoy too much what I'm doing. I really yeah. love what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, that seems to settle it. But wait. But again, if you're tired of this and it looked like people, I'm, I'm talking about maybe in eight years, in 12 years. Well, I'm not sure that you want to see the United States become a winner. Do you want to see the United States become a winner, David? <gasps> but that day, that Wednesday, while I was out for a walk, just having to face the inaccuracy of so many things that I had said in that show that I did with Jeffrey Tucker in the alt-right, I was like, yeah, we all know Hillary Clinton's going to win. Come on, grow up. That's on the record. That makes me look silly. I mean, there's a lot of people in the same boat as me, very smart people who had the same prediction, who thought it was a foregone conclusion. I don't know what to think now. I'm rethinking a lot of things. Have I been converted into a voter or a believer in the system? Of course not, folks. So the impulse for me was to take this new information and find a way to shape it into something that could be fit into my current belief system. And I said to myself, gosh, Brett, that's being kind of lazy. In the week that followed, I started to look for more examples of this kind of thinking. And I think it was maybe November 12th, I received an email from Tom Woods. I'm on his mailing list. So me and thousands of other people, he's not writing me personal emails to share his thoughts. But just in case you don't get emails from Tom Woods, I wanted to share this one with you. Because this really got the gears turning for me. The title was, don't waste your breath reasoning with the left, now or ever. I see people telling the left these days, see, this is why you should support limited government. All right, so obviously a reference to the election of Donald Trump. Friends, I appreciate your zeal, but it is misplaced. Ever since the French Revolution, the birth of the left as we know it, the left, yes, yes, with exceptions, has been about one thing, social reconstruction at the point of a gun. And all the while, they somehow pose as victims, even when they work to destroy the lives of anyone who stands in their path. 
a reasonable person would indeed stop and say, huh, maybe I shouldn't have hypocritically looked the other way while Barack Obama acquiesced and even expanded horrifying executive powers no president should have. Glenn Greenwald, one of my exceptions, is trying to tell the left this, quote, Obama not only continued many of the most extreme executive power policies he once condemned, but in many cases strengthened and extended them. His administration detained terrorism suspects without due process, proposed new frameworks to keep them locked up without trial, targeted thousands of individuals, including a U.S. citizen, for execution by drone, invoked secrecy doctrines to shield torture and eavesdropping programs from judicial review, and covertly expanded the nation's mass electronic surveillance. Blinded by the belief that Obama was too benevolent and benign to abuse his office and drowning in partisan loyalties at the expense of political principles, Democrats consecrated this framework with their acquiescence and often their explicit approval. We made a video a couple of years back when we were doing our live show, just jumping in, um, called In Defense of Drones. It was me and Osborne, and I'm just reacting to this news story where an MSNBC anchor uh, does a commentary on, on some of the drone news and says, yeah, I feel okay with Obama doing it. I didn't feel okay when Bush did it. So what? Uh, continuing with Greenwald, this is the unrestrained set of powers Trump will inherit. The president-elect frightens them, so they are now alarmed. But if they want to know whom to blame, they should just look in the mirror. Unquote. And Tom picks it back up, responding to Greenwald's call to look in the mirror. They won't, because the state is their god. The state created everything out of nothing and saw that it was good. The state is the source of all progress in the world. The state is where we should look for inspiration, for encouragement. Each of us ought to listen with rapt attention to my president. How that my president meme makes me shudder, by the way, not so much for the not as for the exceptionally creepy my president. They are not going to give up on their religion. A sudden conversion to limited government, moreover, would mean an abandonment to the left's very raison d'etre, permanent revolution carried out via coercion. But Woods, you say, some people on the West Coast are talking secession. That's all to the good, though it again shows that these people have no principles except whatever makes them happy. Anyone else talking secession has been dismissed as a racist neo-Confederate, whatever that's supposed to mean. But of course, these people are precious snowflakes with pure intentions, so they may hold unconventional opinions without fear of repercussion. They see no problem with demanding that their opponents accept election results with dignity and grace while protesting and rioting, while they themselves face an unhappy election result. No principles, just whatever benefits them. They have made up stories of a wave of hate crimes sweeping the nation. Even Reason magazine, which despises Trump, published a piece this week exposing this as fake. Again. No principles. Lies are acceptable if they advance the revolution. Or let's demand that everyone accept the existence of 70 gender identities, for which precisely zero scientific evidence exists, and, as is happening in New York City, punish them if they do not go along. Do these seem like nice people who simply have mistaken views of government? Are we dealing with debatable matters of public policy here? No, it isn't metaphysically impossible for a committed leftist to have a change of heart, and I'm delighted when it happens. But in my experience, it's vastly less common for leftists than it is for conservatives to become libertarians. I think there is a reason for that. The longer these leftist antics go on, whether on the streets or the campuses, the more the public will be educated on the precise nature of the totalitarian impulse behind leftism. Do your worst, snowflakes. Tom Woods. We've talked on the show before about how people on the left, through influences in the media, the uh, Bureau of Comedy, uh, at least as you know, a lot of these comedians have functioned for the last eight years, the Stuarts, Marr, 
John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, academia, even public school, these people have come to believe that they are the guardians of justice, that any means justify their ends. And uh, a useful handbook for understanding those means, and you know, I hate to sound like Fox News here, but it has been Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals. Let's run through them really quickly. If you've never heard this before, it's, it's all going to sound eerily familiar. There's 12 of them. Number one, power is not only what you have, but what your enemy thinks you have. Power is derived from two main sources, money and people. Have-nots must build power from flesh and blood. And I think you can see echoes of that one in uh, poll manipulation during this, this election. It's not what you have, but it's what your enemy thinks you have. Number two, and this one is so important, never go outside the expertise of your people. It results in confusion, fear, and retreat. Feeling secure adds to the backbone of anyone. So feel secure at all costs. Three, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. Look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety, and uncertainty. Five, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. If the rule is that every letter gets a reply, send 30,000 letters. You can kill them with this because no one can possibly obey all their own rules. Five, again, this is a key one. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's irrational. It's infuriating. It works as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. Six, a good tactic is one that your people enjoy. They'll keep doing it without urging and come back to do more. They're doing their thing and they'll even suggest better ones. Seven, a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. Don't become old news. Eight, keep the pressure on, never let up. Keep trying new things to keep the opposition off balance. As the opposition masters one approach, hit them from the flank with something new. Nine, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. Imagination and ego can dream up many more consequences than any activist. 10. If you push a negative hard enough, it will push through and become a positive. Violence from the other side can win the public to your side because the public sympathizes with the underdog. Number 11. The price of a successful tack is a constructive alternative. Never let the enemy score points because you're caught without a solution to the problem. And number 12, pick a target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Go after people and not institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. Kaboom. So Linsky's Rules for Radicals is essentially a guidebook. It outlines a careful and deliberative process for taking advantage of people who don't want to engage in a careful and deliberate process. With lots of echoes of uh, Vladimir Lenin's tactics, like use agitation to prevent examination, Rules for Radicals uses tactics that undermine critical thought and subsequent communication geared towards problem solving before they become a nuisance. 
So that being said, part of me really agrees with Tom's title. Never waste your time reasoning with the left. Reason is in no way a part of the strategy that they're using consciously or unconsciously, especially with what we're seeing in all these leftist stronghold cities like New York and Portland, Oregon and Chicago. So they have their strategy. Whatever labels you want to put to it, dishonesty, immorality, irresponsibility, doesn't matter. You're not one of the guardians of justice. If you had justice to guard, you'd understand that even if some of these things do seem unpalatable, and of course would, would be totally unacceptable if they weren't being used to guard justice, it's a-okay here. So in the past on this show, we've talked about like, how do we make friends with these people? How do we convert these people? How do we get them to embrace the ideas of liberty? For the most part, that is never going to happen. These are not the kind of people you want to be friends with, and they're not the kind of people that you would want to draw into this um, too large umbrella called libertarianism, as far as I'm concerned. What we're going to do is we're going to make their behaviors useful to us as educational tools. And why? Because number one, to be totally honest, it's very entertaining. And number two, because they are so blatant and obvious in so many of their thinking errors that it makes our work easier. And that's nice when it's possible. The secondary goal, of course, in keeping with the mission of School Sucks podcast is to have content like this be a resource for saving young people before they've been lost in this world. And I'm going to tell you a shocking story about myself later in this show. But I was very lucky that in 2006, while I was clinging to my last shred of open-mindedness, I managed to find Free Talk Live and then Complete Liberty Podcast and then Free Domain Radio or Free Domain Radio Classic. If that had not happened, I was on a track to be a Bernie Sanders voter just 10 years later in this election. So part of me reads Tom Wood's email and says, yeah, fuck these people. Could they be any more childish? And another part of me says, mm, it's kind of dangerous to use phrases like these people. Sure, it's okay to recognize patterns in groups. But I still try to practice this idea that everyone needs to be evaluated as an individual first. Because once upon a time, I was one of these people, like the ones we're seeing at these protests. Not in actions or in lifestyle, because I always had a job and I always had, you know, an iron and shoelaces and stuff. But in my thought process. So hold that thought for a bit. We'll come back to it at the end. When I talk about saving young people, do you know... There's something called Generation Z. There are actually people alive right now in a generation younger than millennials. And you might say, when I look at millennials as a whole, gosh, I figured they went all the way down to newborns. They don't. Right now, people under the age of 18 are called Generation Z. And through some of the research that I've done, I'm not going to talk about on the show yet, I actually have high hopes for these folks. So even though lots of millennials might behave like they're three years old, actual three-year-olds are called something else, Generation Z. So it's not over yet, folks. Now, I've reviewed the content that we've done on this show over the, the last few months, especially with what we've talked about happening in higher education. And I evidence quite a bit of hostility towards millennials and towards this whole ideology generally. And I feel like as I've listened to monologues and read through show notes, there's still some oversimplification taking place to just call this indoctrination or, you know, the insular environments of, of higher education. I really want to understand how these thoughts and then these subsequent actions come to be. I want to slow things down a little bit in my own thought process and maybe yours to muster some patience to go beyond enemy imagery. I've seen so much of this in even in our own School Sucks group lately, people getting into these political debates and then superimposing enemy archetypes 
onto people, and that just muddies the water. I have to be honest, that frustrates me. Because I see like a lot of us, and it's even, you know, even me at times getting sucked into these, these types of behaviors that for like seven years on this show, we just blamed on these two prevailing political ideologies in the United States, the left and uh, the right, which we call liberals and conservatives. But I'm not even sure those terms are really useful or meaningful anymore. Certainly not liberals for the left. But I also started, I have to be honest, and I know this is going to upset some people, for, throughout most of the history of the show, I think I made a false equivalency between the two. That, you know, political ideologies are basically like traumatic brain injuries that, that affect one area of brain function. And the observation would be something like, oh, you should see this guy. It's, it's so interesting. He can put on pants and make toast and drive a car. But if you ask him about, you know, immigration, he just shits his pants. What a fascinating neural landscape filled with mysteries. That kind of a thing. But going back to Tom's email, he's right. 10 years of experience as a libertarian arguing with political people, even though, sure, that's anecdotal, it backs it up for me. I've had discussions and debates with people on the right, and I've had screaming matches and attacks from people on the left. And very, very similar demographics, age, location, economic status, all controlled for in these experiments. The people on the right have been calm, curious. I mean, they get, they, they get upset and they get frustrated, but they never resort to anything that, that looked like Alinsky's 12 rules that I read a few minutes ago. But almost every conversation with somebody on the left deteriorates into that, sometimes immediately, sometimes within a matter of minutes, but much more uh, fight or flight. And there's plenty of examples of this in the media as well. There's some people in the alternative media who are conservatives that I really like to listen to. Steven Crowder comes to mind. Ben Shapiro comes to mind. And what I see in them is a willingness to engage with people who are not like-minded. Ben Shapiro was just at um, DePaul University, I think it's called. And um, a group of protesters break in and he tries to engage them in dialogue. He's not like super polite because they're interrupting his event, but the only exchange that they're willing to have with, with Ben Shapiro is to scream, two words while he tries to speak to an audience of people who went there to see him at a public university. Shame and safety. But tell me if I'm missing something. As far as like left-wing uh, media creators, I don't see uh, a mirror of Ben Shapiro, somebody who has the willingness and the courage to go and engage with people, to, to expose himself to debate and disagreement. So in the past, like I said, I think we've had some reductive explanations of this whole phenomenon. It's all emotional. People can't be logical while they're being emotional. Uh, it's a mob mentality, especially what we're seeing with these anti-Trump, uh, whatever they are, anti-election, anti-reality protests taking place in major cities. But I want to try and do a better job in upcoming shows with explanations of this than we've, we've done in the past. Some of this will be familiar territory. Some of this will be review, but it's fresh packaging. And I think it's more useful than what we've done before. And, you know, I mentioned uh, things I've been seeing on Facebook from my circles. This series is not limited to criticism of the left. So I told you I've been coming to this conclusion really over the last couple of years that, that people who are conservatives, through what I've observed from my own personal experience and in the media, are just more reasonable and rational than people who are on the other side. But then this Trump comes along and beats the left at their own game. He perfectly taps into the very kind of thinking the powerful people on the left take advantage of. Let's go through Alinsky's rules again. Power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. That's Donald Trump every time he opens his mouth with one grandiose claim after another. The wall. I'm going to build the wall and I'm going to make Mexico pay for it. 
Trump and his supporters give themselves all this credit for pointing out this elephant in the room that is immigration. Nobody would talk about it. People have been talking about it. There's been heated debates about it the entire time that I've followed politics. Bill Clinton was saying almost the exact same things uh, that Donald Trump was saying in the mid-1990s, expressing a lot of the same attitudes towards illegal immigration from Mexico. But there were always these discussions about policies and reforms. And for most people, that's just very nebulous. There's nothing tangible there. But a wall, that's the kind of thing you could see. You could walk up to it and you could touch so all these people suddenly have something real to pacify them, even though it's completely imaginary and it's probably never going to happen. Remember the three-year-old boy, the temperamental three-year-old boy from an earlier story in this show? If you walk up to him in the middle of his tantrum and say, look, you know, it's just you lack perspective and over time things are going to change and you'll find that you'll build up a series of skills and they'll make you less susceptible to these types of frustrations in the future. Very unimpactful. But if you handed him an ice cream cone, things might change very quickly. The wall is that. It allays these fears and frustrations that so many Americans have or that they have been conditioned to have. That's a hotly debated topic. Using that same story, tactic number six, a good tactic is one that your people enjoy. People chanting, build that wall. Donald Trump getting mad. Now the wall is going to be 10 feet higher. The crowd goes wild. How about number 11? If you push a negative deep and hard enough, it will eventually break through to its counterside. It will become a positive. Political victories usually go to the people who stay on the offensive. That's why the left has been so successful, at least in this executive branch contest over the last eight years. Conservatives, or the Republicans, who don't follow rules for radicals, wind up spending a lot of their time defending themselves against charges that they're extremists or racists or they hate women or they despise the poor. Whenever the left tried to pull that with Donald Trump, he just went back on the attack. How about the last one? Pick a target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Donald Trump did this with Mexicans. He did it with Muslims. He did it with black people, calling Hillary Clinton a bigot. Republicans haven't wanted to admit that identity politics is so successful because it provides such simple explanations for everything. But Donald Trump took Democrat Party tactics and used those tactics against Hillary Clinton. The Democratic Party uses you. They only care about your votes. He masterfully repackaged Obama's idea of hope and change. That campaign in 2007 and 2008 was about everything that was wrong with America. And now it's time for hope and change. Same playbook. Make America great again. Do you want hope and change or do you want the status quo? Do you want America to lose or do you want America to be great again? Those are your choices. People bought it both times. And strangely enough, a surprisingly considerable amount of overlap in voters. But what Donald Trump mastered more than any of these other principles of Alinsky. Number four, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. The left uses ridicule because they almost never have logic on their side. We've seen invitations on television or on college campuses for them to rationally make the case for the policies that they're advocating or even explain what they're upset about, and they can seldom do it. So they resort to shaming and ad hominem attacks. Through my observations of Donald Trump over the last year and a half, he didn't really seem to have logic on his side either because he didn't really seem to have the political grammar to make logical arguments. So when he was attacked, he attacked back often with just childish ridicule. He paired that with the principle of keeping the pressure on, not letting up. 
when the opposition, especially in the primaries, mastered or responded effectively to one of his approaches or attacks, he would just hit them with something new. He didn't have to engage in legal debates with Ted Cruz because that would take time away from his hilarious personal attacks of Ted Cruz. So there's a lot of people who call themselves conservatives who walked away from conservatism to vote for this man, Donald Trump, and told themselves a story about why it was the right thing to do and the, even the principled thing to do, which I saw as a very leftist kind of behavior. Telling yourself a story, superimposing a, a fantasy onto this blank political slate that is Donald Trump so you can just feel good about the thing you've already decided to do, which is vote for him. So in the last year, in the media, in political discourse, on Facebook, and Twitter, I have seen destructive types of thinking in a more explicit form than I've ever seen in my entire life. People being influenced in judgment, attitude, and their behavior in ways that they don't even seem to be aware of, primed to accept certain things. People being conditioned to believe things without giving them any thought, often just through repetition of claims alone. People confusing causality with correlation, confirmation bias, rose-colored glasses. So in this series, we're gonna introduce a new tool for taking all of this on, even though we've tried many tools to take very similar things on in the past. It's a book, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow, and it's by a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman. All of us are familiar with two ways ideas come to mind. So if I say two plus two, something came to your mind. If I say 17 times 24, then nothing came to your mind and you probably would have to produce it. Uh, you'd have to generate it in a slow and effortful process. So some thoughts are like two plus two, and this is in some cases how a physician would make a quick diagnosis. All of that is what I call fast thinking or system one thinking. The 17 times 24 is one of many examples in which we reason slowly and effortfully, and that is slow thinking or system two thinking. And when I speak of system two, I speak of that, of effortful computation, and also of monitoring and control, because self-control is another effortful operation. System one, the automatic kind of thinking, is something that clearly grew out of our animal heritage. I mean, animals uh, uh, perceive the world and they perceive causality and uh, there is a great deal of understanding of the world that, that is shared. System two is distinctively human and, and it is our ability to reason and our ability to delay gratification and to control ourselves. There's a great deal and that is evolutionarily late. And, you know, it, it allows us to do great things, but system one is mostly in charge of what we do most of the time. Whenever people remodel a kitchen, uh, now they, and, and they have an idea of how much they're willing to pay, and they have an idea of how much it will cost, they may also know that for most people it costs on average about twice as much as they originally planned. But you don't feel that this applies to yourself. So you have that knowledge which somehow is disembodied and is part of, you know, it, it's available to you, you know it, but you don't apply it. And that is, that failure to apply it is characteristic of system one. It doesn't use statistics very well, and it doesn't apply statistics to specific cases. A great deal of prejudice is, you know, is built in, and, 
and to some extent is uncontrollable. I mean, it's something that we have to that we have to accept as a fact of life. We have stereotypes about everything. We have stereotypes about tables, and certainly we have stereotypes about about social groups. Now, here is clearly a case where you would want system two uh, to be in control. And because you may not want to say everything that's on your mind, and you may realize and try to confront your, your own stereotypes. And indeed, in, in some cases, people can improve themselves by thinking, can improve their stereotypes by thinking more deeply, so that even their initial reactions will be modified. The basic idea behind the book is simple, that there's, there's two routes to persuasion based on two distinct ways or modes of thinking. For the rest of the conversation, we're going to refer to them as System 1 and System 2. System 1 is intuitive thinking, fast, emotional, and almost automatic, based on what is uh, referred to throughout the book as heuristics. Now, in its actual definition, heuristic is a pretty neutral term. It's actually, I would say, more of a positive term. It describes a rule or a method that comes from experience and helps us think through things. So like the process of elimination would be an example of a heuristic, the process of trial and error. But a heuristic could also be a kind of shortcut. And where shortcuts are taken, errors are often made. So in thinking fast and thinking slow, the use of the term heuristics connotes things like intuitive flaws, systematic thinking errors, dogma, bias, presupposition. So it doesn't have a very positive use in this book. It's paired basically with cognitive biases as well. So this fast thinking of system one results in eh, kind of vague impressions, feelings, and inclinations. The second system, system two, is rational thinking, slow thinking, deliberate, systematic, rooted in evaluation and logic. Now, both systems are talked about with respect to persuasion. So now if we just step out of the book for a second, we think about marketing, advertising. Which system do marketers and advertisers generally speak to? Especially if they only have like 30 seconds or a minute in form of a television commercial. System one, it's all system one. Almost every product marketed towards men when it comes to a television ad, somewhere there is a subtext that if you buy this thing, you will get laid more, right? Fast thinking, I wanna have sex. Slow thinking, what would be a process that would make me generally more desirable to the opposite sex? What are the steps in that process? Blah, blah, blah. Who has time for that? Juxtapose what I'm saying right now with the scene on the New York City streets underneath Trump Tower. We have never seen people with a greater aversion to challenge or discomfort or the need for patience. But those are all characteristics of System 2 thinking. Interestingly, though, We've watched somebody this year using the Republican political platform to beat the left at their own game. So Donald Trump built incredible momentum for himself early on in this campaign by betting on the supposition that people favor system one thinking over system two thinking. 
and like tons of marketers and advertisers and television producers and media outlets he met successfully. I think it was P.T. Barnum who said over a hundred years ago, no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Now, does that mean raw intelligence? The people who are doing this are stupid? So just to say, you know, these dismissive things like people behave this way because they're, you know, rabbit people or they're are uh, selected or, you know, like I, I just all of that is collectivist shortcut bullshit to me. And it's a, an example of ex post facto rationalizations that result from system one thinking, but then people have self-awareness to know that they have to go back and tile the the impulsive path they just walked with these little stones of uh, reason and evidence, which is which is where they switch to system two to kind of backfill what they just ran across. So that goes back to this this question. Are these people doing this just because they're stupid? Mm, I don't think so. So again, I'll revert to my stances. Political ideology as a kind of traumatic brain injury. Uh, both ideologies are susceptible to this. I do see more evidence of it on the left. And the reason why I think that is, even though conservatives certainly have their triggers to go, you know, all system one, is that the left is more, especially, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century going forward, is more about abdication of personal responsibility and more about a devaluation of the individual, you know, compared to the collective or the state which reduces, and I know this from experience, from having been on the left, having the specter of an oppressor, the acceptance of the victim mentality often works to absolve people of personal responsibility and a subsequent desire to make their own lives better through action, intellectual and physical action. And I think that personal growth through things like challenge, especially intellectual challenge, is more of a subset of personal responsibility, which a majority of people on the left, especially this, this modern left, eschew almost completely. At the very, very least in their political rhetoric. Even if, you know, in their own individual lives, somebody takes the time to learn graphic design or to learn to play the guitar, but there is some real, real laziness when it comes to the world of ideas because of fallbacks like the victim mentality or the specter of the oppressor or by very, very toxic narratives that are promoted through public schooling and even more promoted by higher education and reinforced by things like the media and the Bureau of Comedy that we are the smarts. This is the political adults table. It's OK to laugh at people who don't think like you because they are stupid. So you don't have to, like, work hard. You found the right side. You found uh, the moral high ground. So all you have to do now is be absorbed into this collective of the guardians of justice. And we have many great luminaries. It's Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bill Maher, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, the science guy. He has the word science in his name, for Christ's sake. Who would possibly have the audacity to disregard what he says? So through the abdication of personal responsibility comes the disregard for intellectual personal growth. My belief that this problem of avoiding the hard work of thinking originates in the associations that people make with thinking in public schooling suggests that it would be impossible for this just to exist in one side of the, the political ideology. 
So all of this is to make the point, let's make sure that we're not getting sucked into that too, the best we can. And none of us are perfect. And I've gotten sucked into it so many times myself, which is why I feel okay saying this. I know what it's like to be, encounter some new stimulus from you know political news and immediately try to integrate it into a way of thinking that I'm comfortable with. And while you know many of us believe we are more competent than most when it comes to thinking about these you know current events and political questions, we do need to carefully audit those systems that run in the background from childhood, from public schooling, and from growing up in this media culture always striving to improve our ability to recognize situations where we might make system one mistakes, I think we all have to some degree, some of us might be more affected by this than others, what is referred to in Thinking Fast and Slow as the lazy controller. The book talks about how different types of strain on the human system lower our self-control. Maybe you've had an experience when you're under a lot of stress, you tend to eat shittier food or you say, I need a drink or I need a cigarette. When we encounter these types of stress, we're more prone to just let system one completely take over our thinking. So think about that. Stress, discord. Now let's talk about political marketing. Who did Donald Trump speak to? Is he doing political marketing targeted towards billionaires, people with comfortable lifestyles of leisure? Absolutely not. Because they have the time, the freedom, the ability to spend more time in system too. So when people can actually think slowly through any proposition, it's a tough sell, you know, selling them on the idea that you should be their ruler. You have to find the system one folks. This is a trick that in the 20th century, Republicans learned from Democrats. You find people who feel like their entire civilization, society is being closed in on by evil. You explain to them that, that those evil forces are real and they're being victimized or threatened by being victimized by them. Same trick on the left, but you have a larger candidate pool for your persuasion. America is a mixed and multicultural society. So all you have to do is start breaking that society up into segments, demographics, and telling each one why they are aggrieved, why they should feel like victims. Make them contemplate how desperate their situation is. Give them nebulous enemies that they can never properly identify. Institutional racism, the patriarchy, and condition them to see evidence of those things everywhere. See, but now things have escalated because those nebulous enemies have a face, and it is the face of Donald Trump. Racist, sexist, elitist. This is why he might be the most hated man in the history of American politics. Because finally, all of these vague, angry, desperate feelings can get some direction towards a target. Because he's the perfect embodiment of what the left has been trying to scare people about for years. Now, all this being said, I hold on to a little bit of hope 
I know that there are some high school and college students, this message can't help because they won't embrace it because of numerous uh, emotional or environmental factors. It's like that person, I mean, I've had numerous people like this in my life and I've maybe been this person in somebody else's life. You're trying to help them, but you can only talk to them like once a week. Well, even if you have the most connected and meaningful interaction with them for that one or two hours of their waking life that week, the rest of their life, their influences, their environment, um, undo that. But if you value the work that I've done over the last seven years, and if you recognize the number of people that I have persuaded, including people from the left, but if you think the net impact of School Sucks podcast has been positive over the last seven years, and if you're listening, I think you probably feel that way. I am somebody who once said to my own conservative father, uh, maybe like in 2002 or 2003, I was on some left-wing ideology-driven tirade. And my father responded by saying, Brett, I think most people just don't think that way or feel that way. And my response, this is 26 years old, 25, 26 years old. I said, well, they should be made to. That was me. That's the person you're listening to right now said that. So having that life experience makes it a little bit harder for me to give up on all of these people. And because of that, I strive for precision through persuasion. So we see a lot of these people, and I've done it on social media too, and we call them snowflakes or fucking idiots or something because it seem like effective shorthands to describe their behavior. But it's inaccurate because we're using that term snowflake to define a person's whole existence. You're a snowflake. You're a social justice warrior. It extends further. Some people talk. Uh, from there, once people's whole, once a person's whole being is defined by a word or two, they talk prescriptions. And while there's emotion in that that I understand, we can set ourselves down a far more constructive, and I, and I, I just even mean for our, our, our own well-being and our own happiness and our own serenity, a more constructive path by not defining people, but by defining their behaviors and their thinking errors. So I've read this book, I read it a while ago, and I'm gonna use it to label some of the things that we have been seeing on the news and in social media really throughout this election campaign, really escalating since last Tuesday, election day. In an effort to help more of us to retain an ability that we've tried to explain from several different angles on this show in the past, thinking slow, deliberate, systematic, evaluative. So instead of labeling people, we can label errors in thinking without engaging in those errors ourselves. So please take the next few days to mull over what's been introduced here. Share your thoughts in the Facebook group. Thanks for listening, everybody. To be continued. Ladies and gentlemen, we've begun the initial descent. And now it's time to pull up on the wheel.
life I stop Laying next to her handsome new flame I didn't recognize his face too much Except for the grimace on his mouth He looked a lot like me He seemed to be in pain I didn't hear the picture window break I didn't see the rising sun But I could feel the morning breeze Then I heard her tired voice speak up And say I think this party's done She asked if I could drive her home And then she added please Please We're not the killer 